Father, thank you for the hope. The hope that we have in Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus. And thank you that that hope translates into waiting and worshiping while we live in a kingdom that is colliding with your kingdom. But by your grace and for your glory, we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. For the cross and the tomb are empty. Jesus lives to make intercession for us as his people. So now as I open your word to your people, may you love your people through me. May your spirit take your word and apply it to our hearts. And may you use me to point your people to Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks so much, team, for leading us this morning. I encourage you to find in your copies of the Scriptures Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have a Bible for you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. Or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible in the hymnal rack beneath you, page 1008 in the church Bible. And as you're finding your place there in Mark chapter 12, um, listen, I, I... as your pastor, I want you to know me. Um, and, and I don't just want to be a robot up here preaching and teaching the truth of God's Word to you. I don't want to be the latest, greatest AI, okay? <laughs> um, you say you don't have enough intelligence to be artificial intelligence. <laughs> and so I've reminded you before, I've shared with you before that growing up, uh, mom gave us three boys nicknames. I won't share what my two younger brothers' nicknames were, but I will share what my nickname was. She, she called me Mr. Irritator. Now, I know you find that hard to believe, but um, when I was growing up, if there was peace in the house, I was unhappy. And so my goal in life was to stir things up. I loved controversy. I breathed controversy. I ate and drank controversy. My job was to stir things up. And now that I'm older, I hate controversy. Um, all I want is for everybody to hug each other. Let's all love each other. Let's all get along together. Let's, let's just... Forget controversy. There's not enough time in this world for controversy. And, you know, um, one of the reasons I preach through books of the Bible, what we call expositional preaching, is because we this morning embark upon a text that if I were not preaching through Mark's gospel, I would not choose to preach, not just because it talks about taxes, but because it can be controversial. How do we as Christians interact with the political realm of the nation in which we live as citizens of the kingdom of God. That's tough. Get a group of Christians together and just begin talking about politics and you'll know controversy. But there is a reason we have come to this text on this Memorial Day weekend in God's providence. He has much to teach us from this text about how we live in this world 
as citizens of his kingdom. So let's pick up the text as Jesus has, is living his life on purpose for us and calls us to join him in living that life of purpose as we follow him. And that includes how we do life as citizens here in America while we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So let's pick up the text. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And they, that is the religious leaders, sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. But you truly teach the way of God. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at Jesus. This is the word of our God. Now, I've officially lived long enough in this world to see a huge number of changes in this world. So I'm going to put a, screen, a photo up on the screen. This is, young people, this is a telephone. A telephone had a cord. It hung on a wall or sat on a desk. And it had a dial on it by which you dialed a phone number. How many of you are old enough that you grew up with one of these? And you knew you had arrived when you had a 25-foot-long phone cord that you could stretch into your bedroom to talk to your girlfriend. <laughs> and then there's this. Anybody remember these? These are real televisions with tubes and everything, rabbit ears, again, dials, where the remote control in our family was us three boys. Think about that, all right? When Dad wanted the channel changed, we got up to change the channel. And then there's this one. How many of you remember these? All right, so this is a contraption that used to be a part of every vehicle that was manufactured. You would roll down your window and roll up your window. And then there's this. Morality. Do you know how much our world's morality has changed in my short 51 years on this earth? But the biggest change I've experienced in those years is the increasing, the increasing desire I have to go and be with Jesus. It's what I was telling our Sunday school class last Sunday morning. That was when I was a kid and before I was 16, I would pray, Jesus, please don't come back until I'm 16 and have my driver's license. <laughs> and then after I turned 16, I'm like, Jesus, don't come back until I'm 18 and have graduated from high school. And then it became, Jesus, please don't come back until I finish college and am married. And after being married, it was like, Jesus, please don't come back until we have children and then we had children, and my prayer changed. Jesus, please come back. 
Now, now, listen, I say that with, with two of my children here this morning. I love our children. We, we are thankful for our children. They are gifts from God. I want you to know, if you're a guest here this morning, please just erase what I just said. Because here at Bethel, we love children. And, um, but there is something that scares me with our children. And it's the world they're growing up in. It's becoming increasingly clear that this earthly kingdom in which I live is colliding with the eternal kingdom to which I belong. I am feeling less and less at home here, but then I remember that that's the way Christians have always felt about this world. I remember growing up in one of those vehicles with those roll-up and roll-down windows. Dad used to sing this song, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And that's the truth that Jesus is teaching in this scene. It may appear at first glance that Jesus is just speaking about taxes, but it's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that because the big idea here is that as Jesus' followers, we're pilgrims in this world's kingdom because we're citizens of another kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We live in this world, but we are not of this world because we live for another world. We embrace a different set of values. We're driven by different affections. We live for a different purpose because we bow before a different king. We serve the king of kings whose kingdom is not of this world. And that's why we feel the rub we feel in this world. That's where the tension is. So when this world's kingdom bumps up against God's kingdom, what do we do? That's the question Jesus is answering in this scene. And what's crazy is that that's not a question posed to Jesus by his followers, but by his enemies. And they're coming in after him hot and heavy. It's wave after wave after wave of religious leaders piling on Jesus. You remember that back in chapter 11, it was the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronting Jesus, demanding that he tell them where he's getting the authority to do the things he's doing and to say the things he's saying. And when Jesus tells them a parable that reveals their intention to kill him, they walk away from him. That's verse 12 of chapter 12 here. And you'll notice that in your Bible, there's a big white space after verse 12 where it appears that there's nothing really significant happening. But it is because this is Tuesday of Passion Week. In three days, Jesus will be hanging from a cross but now here on Tuesday, Jesus is continuing his walk and talk with the people in the temple, mingling with them, talking with them. Meanwhile, in that white space between verses 12 and 13, the Sanhedrin, that is the official Jewish religious council, is holding a clandestine meeting. They're moving to phase two of their plan. 
Since the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were unable to bring Jesus down in chapter 11, they're going to send in reinforcements now in chapter 12. Now it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Listen, Jesus understands pressure. He knows what it is to do life under constant pressure, severe pressure, unrelenting pressure. Wherever he is, whomever he's with, whatever he's doing or saying, people are watching, lurking in the shadows, waiting for the opportunity to take Jesus down. So when you feel that way in this world's kingdom, that so often seems to be working against you, remember that Jesus has been there. He's done that. You're not alone in that. Your Savior can identify with you in that. Family pressure, health pressure, work pressure, school pressure. Pressure is Jesus' constant companion. And so we need to hear him when he says to us in John 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. The Greek word there literally means pressure. In this world, you will have pressure. But take heart. Be of good cheer. Buck up. Be strong. Trust me. Follow me, Jesus says, because I have overcome this world. This is our Jesus. I have overcome this world. And that's why we are overcomers in this world. And that's what we're going to see playing out right here in this scene when the Pharisees and the Herodians show up to confront Jesus as an official delegation from the Jewish religious council. Now, for a Jew in Jesus' day, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, working together would be comparable to Republicans and Democrats actually working together in our day. It just doesn't happen. And that's because the Pharisees are Israelite nationalists. They hate Rome. The Herodians, on the other hand, are Roman nationalists, and they are loyal to Rome. The Pharisees are intensely religious. The Herodians are intensely political. In fact, the Pharisees, if you were to pull them aside in this scene and ask them, what do you really think about the Herodians? They would say, we despise them. They've sold their soul to Rome. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And so we're going to team up with them because Rome, the Pharisees would say, is our only hope of killing Jesus. And so if the Pharisees can convince Rome to arrest Jesus, they'll be able to turn the Jewish people against Jesus. You know why? Because the Jews have set their hope on a political Messiah who will overthrow Rome. And so if the Pharisees can convince Rome to arrest Jesus, it will turn the Jews against Jesus because in their minds, if Jesus is really the Messiah, he could never be arrested by the Romans. But there's also a rub here because Rome couldn't care less about a Jewish Messiah. Rome isn't into theology. Rome is into politics. And that's where the Herodians come in. 
That's why the Pharisees need them, because if Jesus, if they can get Jesus to say anything against Caesar or Herod, then they can accuse him of treason, and Rome would be happy to arrest him and kill him. And when that happens, it will become obvious to the Jewish people that Jesus cannot be the Messiah because he has no authority over Rome. Boom! There it is. It's a can't-miss strategy. Jesus is a walking dead man. And they're going to pull this off by trapping Jesus in his own words when they ask him a question. But I want you to notice in your Bibles that before they ever get to the question, they spend a whole lot of time, and there are a whole lot of words given to how they, how they soften Jesus up, how they butter him up. And so they say, look, look at it. They say, hey, teacher, we know that you are true, that you're a man of high character and integrity. You aren't swayed by public opinion. You aren't interested in the latest polling data. You speak the truth to everyone regardless of who they are or their status. We know, Jesus, we know that we can trust you because you teach the ways of God. You're the man, Jesus Now, if you were there in the crowd that day knowing what you know about the Pharisees and the Herodians and how they've been treating Jesus, what would your response be? Because I can just imagine at this point in the story, there in the crowd, eyes must be rolling and heads must be shaking. It's all so laughable. Flattering the one who's unflatterable. Schmoozing the unschmoozable. These guys, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they speak the truth about Jesus with their lips, but they don't mean it from their hearts. For three plus years now, they've been accusing Jesus of blasphemy, of getting his power to do his miracles from the devil himself. And here they are, buttering Jesus up, softening Jesus up, praising Jesus up. Listen, listen please. Flattery is a poorly disguised form of hypocrisy. Pretending to be somebody you aren't by claiming to believe something you don't, don't to get something you want. That's how the game is played in this world's kingdom. But as followers of Jesus, we live by a different set of rules because we're citizens of a different kingdom. We don't butter people up. We build people up. We speak the truth in love, Ephesians chapter 4 says. And because we live for an audience of one, we don't give too much weight to what the world says or thinks about us. We're not driven by how many Facebook likes we get to our post or by how many times our tweet gets retweeted. Teenage girls, you see right through that guy who's always saying the things you want to hear to get what he wants from you. Married men and women, you're careful about that coworker who's always complimenting you even when what they say is true. As citizens of God's kingdom, we get that flattery is dangerous because we believe Proverbs 29, verse 5, when it says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. That's what these guys are doing with Jesus. When they say, okay, Jesus, we've got a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? 
And they think with this question that they've got Jesus. This is their gotcha moment. This is their unanswerable question. Because if Jesus says, pay Caesar, the Jewish people will turn on him. Because in their minds, the Messiah would never sanction paying taxes to a tyrannical Roman government. And if Jesus says, don't pay taxes, well, the Herodians are there. And they will accuse Jesus of insurrection against Rome. Either way, the Jewish religious leaders will win and Jesus will lose his life. That's what they're thinking until Jesus gives the answer. He sees right through the hypocrisy of their flattery. And so he says, guys, this is like the same song, 33rd verse. You're testing me all over again. I get it. I see it. But you know what? I'll play along. So does anybody have a denarius? Now, a denarius was a coin that represented a day's wage during Jesus' day. So lots of people in the crowd would have a few coins clanging around in their pouch. And someone says, yeah, yeah, here, Jesus. And they flip it to him. And he says, look at it with me. And I can just imagine the crowd pushing up closer to Jesus just to see what he's about to say and do. And he holds up that coin between his thumb and his forefinger and he turns it back and forth. And he says, okay, everybody, whose image is on this coin? And whose inscription is right here? And everybody would answer, well, obviously, Jesus, it's a Roman coin. It's Caesar. And at this point in history, it would be Tiberius Caesar Augustus. And written on that coin were the words, Son of the Divine Augustus. In other words, this Caesar considers himself to be the Son of God. And on the back, if you were really wondering about what Tiberius meant by that phrase, on the back there's an image of him seated on a throne, wearing a crown, clothed as a high priest. Everything on that coin was all about Caesar and only Caesar. We would call it overkill, but it fits perfectly with the point Jesus is making when he asks, so you're, you're telling me that Caesar's image and inscription are on this coin? Yes, Jesus, that's what we're saying. Okay, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes. And the Pharisees are in the crowd, licking their chops. Jesus has just fallen right into their trap. This is all they need to turn the Jews against Jesus. But that's when Jesus says, hold on. I'm not done yet. That's not all. You don't just have a responsibility to this world's kingdom. You have a responsibility in God's kingdom. So you give to Caesar what is Caesar's because his image is imprinted right here on this coin. And you give to God what is God's because His image is imprinted on your soul. You were created in God's image. And so you owe Him infinitely more than the tax you owe Caesar. Everything you have and everything you are is because of God whose image is imprinted on your soul, so you owe your life to him. You give your life to him. So can I ask, have, 
Have you done that? Have you obeyed what Jesus is saying here? Have you given your life to God? You know, there are two reasons to do that. First, he created, he created you. So without him, you wouldn't be here. You see, with him, your life is no accident. You're here on purpose and for a purpose. And the only place you discover that purpose is in him because the one who created you also sent his son to earth for you, to redeem you. To live the perfectly holy life you couldn't. To die the death you deserve. And Jesus does that so that we as sinners could come to a holy God. We could be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. But the only way into that kingdom is to give him your life. And the only way you can give him your life is to enter that kingdom with and through the one who came to die for you. It's 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Dying in the place of sinful people is the Holy One. Why? So that He might bring us to God. There's only one way into that kingdom, and it's through Jesus. You can't work your way into that kingdom. You can't earn your way into that kingdom. Only He can for you. That's why Titus 3 verse 5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's only according to His mercy that He saves us. The only way any of us can give God what we owe him and enter into his kingdom, the only way any of us can give our life to him is by the grace of Jesus and through the person of Jesus. And that's why John 14 verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that you? Have you come? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved? Have you repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ by that grace alone, through faith alone? Please, I beg of you, don't respond to Jesus like these religious leaders do. Notice how the text ends in verse 17. They are impressed by Jesus. They marvel at him. They're amazed at him. But they will not entrust themselves to him. And so they turn and walk away from him. Please do not walk away from Jesus. Jesus did not come to impress you. He came to die for you. So believe on him. Give your life to him. By grace alone, through faith alone. And if you will, and when you do, there are three takeaways from this scene for you. Because as citizens of God's kingdom, first, Jesus is calling us to submit to the authorities in this world's kingdom. He is calling us to submit to the authorities in this world's kingdom. Listen, even though we don't live for this world, we do live in this world, and so we have responsibilities to the authorities of this world. 
That's Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So God has instituted human government for the common good of mankind. And as his followers then, we are to respect the civil authorities that God has appointed, even when it comes to paying taxes. Now, nobody likes paying taxes. I thought maybe I'd get one amen there or one preach it, brother, or just let me know you're still with me. You're still alive out there, all right? Nobody likes paying taxes. But everybody likes the benefits those taxes bring. I mean, I learned that growing up. Because when your wood stove, your wood-burning stove is shooting flames out the top of your chimney, you're thankful for a fire department. When your home is broken into and a thief takes your stereo system and your microwave oven, you're like, why would anybody steal a microwave oven? Well, back in the early 80s, Those things were precious. When that happens, you're thankful for law enforcement who put their lives on the line to catch that bad guy. Even if on the highway, he he shoves the microwave oven and the stereo speakers out the back of his hatchback and into the path of an 18-wheeler. You know, we may not like everything about our government, We may not appreciate the high property or sales taxes here in Cook County, but Jesus says here that as citizens of his kingdom, it is our responsibility to pay those taxes, even while we secondly live between two worlds. Let's just acknowledge that in this scene, we feel the tension about paying taxes to Caesar and honoring Caesar and living for and honoring Jesus. We embrace that tension that comes with living in this world while living for another world. Um, I, I, I love politics. And I have to guard my heart against making an idol out of politics. That's why I have to, I have to be careful of how much how much news I watch, how much political commentary I listen to. I love politics. We have a former Illinois state representative who sends his son here to Schaumburg Christian School, and I love talking shop with Tom. I love it, especially around election time. I have to fight the tendency to let politics permeate this pulpit. I love being an American. I praise God for the freedoms we enjoy here I so highly appreciate and commemorate the sacrifices men and women have, given, have, have made to secure and preserve those freedoms. God has blessed us here in America. Amen? Amen? He's blessed us. That's the kingdom I live in. But there's another kingdom I live for. It's the same kingdom my brothers and sisters in Jesus in Afghanistan and Iran and northern Africa and China are living for, while the kingdom they live in is persecuting them and even executing them. 
They get that there is a difference between the earthly kingdom that's squashing them and the heavenly kingdom that's awaiting and welcoming them. Do we get the distinction like they do? Jesus is telling us here that his kingdom is not a political kingdom. It's not an Israelite kingdom or an American kingdom. And that means that Bethel Baptist Church is not an American church. Bethel Baptist Church is a church that belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone that happens to be in America. Because Jesus says in John chapter 18 verse 36 that my kingdom is not of this world. So don't set your hope on some kind of Christian political utopia. That's what these Jews were doing in Jesus' day. They were expecting a political Messiah who would set up a political kingdom and free them from Rome and rule in righteousness from Jerusalem's throne. But Jesus didn't come to do that. He didn't come to set up a political kingdom. He came to die to bring sinners into an eternal kingdom. So don't set your hope on what you see and hear on Fox News or CNN. Don't set your hope on getting a Republican into the White House or keeping a Democrat there. The hope for, the, for America and the hope for the world is always and only the gospel of Jesus proclaimed by the followers of Jesus, all for the glory of Jesus. That's the one and only mission that Jesus has given to his church. It isn't a political mission. It's a gospel mission, an eternal mission. Because followers, as followers of Jesus, he has called us to thirdly seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. It's what we read earlier this morning. And so the primary issue here in this text isn't about paying our taxes to Caesar. It's about giving our allegiance to Jesus. And that means that the politics of Caesar are never an excuse to disobey Jesus. Now, I'm thankful that here in America... We're endowed with the right to object to political policies we find unethical or immoral. I'm thankful that even here in Cook County, we can appeal our property taxes. Amen? A couple of you, okay? I'm thankful that we can speak and vote our conscience. But we are to seek first God's eternal kingdom. And so we must never allow disagreements over politics to keep us from loving our neighbor as Jesus has commanded. Because it's not their, their political affiliation that matters most. It's their eternal destiny. It isn't this world's kingdom. It's God's eternal kingdom. And so if you're wondering which kingdom you're seeking first, maybe consider this. The kingdom I'm most passionate about is the kingdom I'm most vocal about. It's the kingdom that gets the most attention in my Facebook posts and Twitter tweets and Instagram posts. So what is that kingdom for you? Let me leave you with this. 
You know, in this scene, Jesus is given the perfect opportunity to comment on the Roman government. But he doesn't. Not because he doesn't care about it. He does. He instituted it. And it isn't because he's afraid of what will happen if he says something against Rome. Because he's sovereign over Rome. Now, Jesus doesn't comment on Rome because all the way through Mark's gospel, he's made it clear that he's got a singular focus. And that's on God's kingdom. And that's why, as his followers, we live as pilgrims in this world's kingdom as we await the coming of God's kingdom. And so we pay our taxes to Caesar but we give our hearts to Jesus because he alone is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we live between two worlds where evil seems to be prevailing, let's remember that Revelation 11 verse 15 says, there is coming a day when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever ever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that this world is not our home, that we're just a passing through. Thank you that our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Thank you that a heavenly, eternal kingdom awaits. So help us, I pray, to live as Jesus did, paying his taxes while still singularly focused on that eternal kingdom. May we love our neighbors well, even those with whom we disagree on politics. May we represent Jesus well in this kingdom and in this world. And may we all know for certain that we are bound for that promised land, the eternal kingdom, because we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. He is our king. In his name I pray. Amen.